Good morning, and welcome to episode 115 of Effectively Wild, the Baseball Prospectus Daily Podcast. Yeah, thank you for joining me. Uh, I am Ben Lindbergh in New York, New York, and with me, and very happy to be with me, is Sam Miller in Long Beach, California, who sounds awful. I've been talking to you for a few minutes, and I already want to go to the doctor or get a flu shot or something. I don't think I've ever heard you pronounce the D in your name, and I've never pronounced the D in your name. Yeah, I I don't. That was weird. Something strange happened while I was saying my name, uh-huh. and I noticed it at the time. But yes, you are correct. There is a there is a deadness in my body right now, and I'm trying to get rid of it uh, before it kills me completely. But yes, quite sick. Everybody's quite sick. We're all quite sick. The world is sick. My household is sick. Uh. Well, we are going to try to get through this before you collapse, and it's a listener email show, so we have listener yeah, emails yeah, yeah. to answer. Uh, we're going to do maybe four or so, and I'm going to start by reading them now while you blow your nose or something. So the first question is from Matt in Chestnut Hill, Massachusetts. Matt says, when we look back at player statistics for Hall of Fame posterity purposes, we account for things like disadvantageous ballparks, extenuating non-baseball factors, military, racism, etc. Should we also credit players for poor management due to what was not known at the time? For example, Oral Hershiser was crazy overworked in the late 80s because that's what you did back then. As a result, his numbers aren't what they could have been. But really, he was just playing by the rules of the time, which didn't include things like pitcher abuse points, etc. Within that realm, he was extremely successful. What he was being asked to do was only going to last for so long without blowing a rotator cuff. Should we add to his legacy for this in the same way we would a pitcher who put up a good, not great numbers in a great hitter's park or something like that? What do you say? Uh... I thought that's interesting. I thought we were. I um, yeah. I was expecting you to read the other Hall of Fame question. Should we bundle these? Uh, okay, I guess the other one is kind of more involved. Yeah, but it's also simpler. Okay. Um, the other one is just if, basically if you were to start the Hall of Fame now from scratch, who would your ten be? And then he gave us his ten. And if we get to that point, we can read his ten, and then we can. I don't know. If, do you have a ten? Do you have ten? Nope. I do. Okay. Uh, well, that yeah, that question was from James in Sarasota, Florida, and he wants to know if we blow up the Hall of Fame, not literally, and start over, how would we define the criteria for membership and who would be our first 10 inductees? Yeah, so to Matt's question, um, this is an interesting question because there is – I was um, driving today and my mind was sort of uh, just – barely working like it was sort of churning along at a very low level and it was thinking about jack morris because ugh, you know <laughs> and it all of a sudden like without me trying to do this it all of a sudden made perfect sense to me that people would support jack morris and like his case all like made a great deal of sense and the case was simple and it's not i mean you know the case the case is the case is basically that that he won a lot of games at a high percentage and the obvious rebuttal to that is that a win is a team effort, and Jack Morris doesn't get the credit for all of it. And uh, there's, all, you know, there's so many factors that go into a win. And once you start neutralizing those factors, then Jack Morris doesn't stand up, right? But if you just 
look at like the guy was a like was around and doing an important thing when success was happening. Um, I don't know that that's not a good qualification. Like if you were to do like like uh, the drummer for the Rolling Stones, you know his name, right? Charlie Watts. Charlie Watts. Okay, he's terrible at drumming, right? As I understand it, he's like a poor drummer. He's not a very good drummer. I think his reputation is that he's not flashy and he's sort of fundamentally sound. I guess. Right. He is not a Hall of Fame drummer, and yet he is in the Hall of Fame, and he's in the Hall of Fame because he was there doing a competent job when success was happening to him, and success, you know, a lot of the success happened to him, and some of the success happened because of him, but nonetheless, his record is one of great success, and um, so like there's a there's a very like there's a sort of truth and reality to that statement, which is you know he was there. And successful, and that's that's how guys get rewarded. That's how with Charlie Watts. Yes, mm-hmm. that's how Charlie Watts gets in the Hall of Fame is by being around for a lot of success. And so this question is this anyway. That's a that's kind of a tangent about Jack Morris, who I don't think has any business being in the Hall of Fame. Oh, okay, but, I thought you were sicker than you had let on already. You said no, that you had been persuaded by the Jack Morris yeah. argument. Obviously, Jack Morris has no business, but. Um, this goes in the other direction, which really asks us to imagine things that didn't even happen, mm-hmm. you know, to, to measure based on hypotheticals and theoreticals and alternative universes and sort of, I mean, that's kind of overstating what Matt is saying, but it's asking us to, to rate him on sort of a, 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 a truth that was never actually revealed, but that we think is more true than what actually happened. Right. Mm-hmm. So I would say that uh, I I don't think that I would give credit for that stuff. I mean, I I am like sympathetic to the idea that like some guys missed years of play because of the war, for instance. Uh, and if a sort of flukishly bad thing happened to you, then I, I kind of want to give that player extra credit. But for the most part, I think that you're kind of limited to what happened and. Uh, what the performance level was, as long as that's how you define Hall of Famer. If you define Hall of Famer by impact on the game, impact in games, uh, impact on your team's effort to win, uh, which is basically how I would define the criteria for a Hall of Fame baseball player, um, then I don't think you can put too much emphasis on that stuff. That's how. Yeah, I guess I feel the same way, at least about injuries. I mean, for a pitcher... The ability not to be injured is a, a big part of what makes you valuable and what makes you a, a Hall of Famer. Um, and I guess you can look at certain pitchers who were overworked more than others and say that it wasn't their fault they got hurt, it was the management, but who knows whether they would have gotten hurt anyway. Uh, so that seems a little bit like a stretch to me. But what about someone like Edgar Martinez, who uh, had his first full season at age 27 in 1990 from 1985 through 1989 he was in AAA most of that time and he hit 344 450 495 so you figure he certainly could have held his own in the major leagues for at least a couple of those years um and added to his case to some extent and you're kind of translating minor league statistics in your head there to 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 say that but 
it doesn't seem like a huge stretch to say that if he had been called up earlier, if the Mariners had recognized what they'd had in him, perhaps uh, they, you know, his record would look more impressive. Although I guess you can also say that he wasn't ready mentally or something, and they knew that he would not be able to handle the major leagues and maybe his career wouldn't have turned out as well as it had if they'd called him up earlier. So I guess there's some element of imagination there also. And well, and what if like, what if, I mean, this didn't happen, but what if a manager had decided Edgar Martinez was needed at second base and he had spent his whole career playing second base and racking up, you know, minus 35 (laughs) defensive uh, ratings every year. And it just killed his, his his win value would we hold that against him uh that geez. would be a question about jeter except the jeter uh yeah, seems to be good enough the, that it doesn't matter i guess but yeah he's good enough it doesn't matter and he also seemed to be the guy who was pushing to stay at shortstop mm-hmm. as much as anybody else but and also in your edgar example um why don't we include why don't we think about a player's minor league career at all is that it? I, I, as I understand it, the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum isn't explicitly limited to major league performance, right? I mean, there's obviously there's Negro leaguers in there, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if a guy has three or four sensational minor league seasons, mm-hmm. uh, that never ever comes up. I'm not suggesting it should, but uh, I don't know. Should it a little? <laughs> uh... I don't know. Maybe in the the Edgar contest context that he could have contributed more in the majors. I, I guess yeah, no one really cares what you do at Triple A, even if it does tell you something about what you might have done in the majors. I mean, I don't know. I I, I guess I've heard it. I've heard that point raised with Edgar certainly. Um, for people who say that he didn't have enough career value or whatever, people have certainly made the point that he could have had more. Um, and then, I mean, I guess that's not so different from someone who established himself as a star, goes away to the war, and then comes back and is still a star. Uh, there's no real reason to think that he wouldn't have continued to produce as he did during the war years. I don't know how many players uh, have been excluded from the hall because of the of their service. I don't know how many players you could make that case about I bet there are none yeah probably not and by this point uh i, I don't know maybe maybe for the korean war but I, I mean by this point it seems like uh everybody deserving who played before like 1960 is just about in right yeah i think so for the most part mm-hmm. uh so Stubbs before then. I mean, those those generations are well overrepresented. Yes, they have been picked over multiple times. Yes. Um, so James's uh, first ten inductees were Alexander Cartwright, Harry Wright, Van Johnson, Honus Wagner, Charles Levitt Jr., Kennesaw Mountain Landis, Babe Ruth, Brent Rickey, Jackie Robinson, and Walter O'Malley. Um, I have not thought about who my ten would be. I would say that they would all be players, probably. Just, I don't know. That's kind of what I would be concentrating on. Though, if we were only talking about the most influential people or something, then it probably wouldn't be players. Um, Yeah, I think I would start with all players. I think it would take a while before I wanted to go beyond players. So my my first 10 would all be players. I I think that... um, 
uh, I mean, certainly there's a place in the Hall of Fame for non-players, and I'm glad that the Hall of Fame includes those. Uh, but I think that it is, it is uh, at its heart, it is a sport of performance. And when you're recognizing the the great the great players uh, or the great people in the game, you start with the people who performed. So mine would all be players. Mm-hmm. And did you pick those players? Yeah, I think if I were to start it uh, right now, I would want generational um, uh, distribution, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I picked a player based on birth year from each decade. Okay. Uh, so I would so Jack go... Jack Morris... I was going to make that joke. Mm, sorry. You can still make it. Pretend I didn't say no, that. It's okay. It's okay. okay. Uh, so I would have uh, Walter Johnson for the 1880s, Babe Ruth for the 1890s, uh, Gehrig for the 1900s, uh, Jackie Robinson for the 1910s, which is uh, sort of breaking my rules, I think, a little bit mm-hmm. because uh, Ted Williams was a better ball player mm-hmm. and as as a ball player was more influential but uh i just think that as a I, i'm i'm willing to break the rules and say that jackie robinson as a baseball figure mm-hmm. plus as a ball player is more okay so then uh 1920s musial 1930s mays 1940s siever 1950s ricky henderson 1960s bonds and 1970s pedro so those would be my 10 and i would actually be pretty happy with that i would rather i think i would rather have like ted williams than musial and i would probably rather have uh, I don't know. It's hard not to have Cobb in there, and it's hard not to have Clemens or Maddox in there, but mm-hmm. pretty satisfied with that list. And would you do anything adventurous, like different tiers, as a number of people have proposed, and have a room for inner circle people and a room for people who contributed in lots of little ways or or anything like that, or would you just kind of keep... No, I'm not very ambitious with it. <laughs> if I were to do anything, I might... Like ESPN just came out with their Hall of Fame, which was ranked. It was a hundred hundred people, in and they're all ranked one to a hundred, and it's sort of a living Hall of Fame. So uh, as more play, as other players retire, uh, they'll move. They'll go onto the list, and mm-hmm. players will down the list. And I would be. I personally like everything to be ranked, and uh, it's hard for me to see a unranked list. So I might. I might rank. I might do a ranking, but I wouldn't do tears or anything like that i just you know simple's fine with me i don't like we talked about yesterday it's not a thing that affects our life all that much Mm -hmm. okay so that's our hall of fame talk for today uh later today we will all react to the results and possibly we'll talk about it again possibly not uh the next question comes from michael who says in reading and listening to the various off-season podcasts articles etc Quite a bit is being made out of teams such as Cincinnati and Arizona having too many outfielders. I am wondering if the media is not properly factoring in the effect of the new schedule. With the Astros move to the AL, interleague play will go on every day. As a result, NL teams in AL parks such as the Reds and the D-backs will be able to play their fourth outfielders, Ludwig, Kubel, Ross, at DH. Given that everyday DHs seem to be becoming a thing of the past, is this not just NL teams taking advantage of the schedule change to get competitive advantage and quality at bats in that spot? Well, this is not a point that I have been convinced by. I've heard it said or variations on it, and I don't really accept it. I think that they're playing the same number of interleague games that they always did, and the distribution of them, to me, doesn't seem very significant. I didn't see... Uh, nationally, it's. I mean, the idea, I guess, is that National League teams were 
going into these extended interleague plays by like maybe shuffling their rosters or something, but I don't think there was a great deal of roster shuffling going on. And mm-hmm. uh, I mean, you're, you have 144 games or something like that that aren't interleague, and that's the overwhelming bulk of the season. So I just don't think that it's a particularly efficient use of a roster if that really is the strategy. Mm-hmm. It certainly doesn't seem like Arizona is trying to have that many outfielders, or at least they're they're trying to reduce the number of outfielders that they have. Well, they have five, though. They're trying to get down to four. So that Yeah, that's true. Well, I guess they kind of went last, last season with four. I mean... They just really wanted to get, uh, like, prepared. Yeah, <laughs> right, they wanted to... Give it a trial run for one season. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I. I guess I. I just don't really get how it would be uh, efficient. I mean, there's always been the theory that the AL has an advantage in interleague because the AL teams have a dedicated DH, whereas the NL teams do not, and just kind of press a a bench player into service for that. Um, but yeah, I guess I don't really know why the the new schedule would change their incentives to carry someone better for that spot. Uh. Yeah, that's the main thing. I don't think the schedule changes the incentives. And and even if you think that that does give the AL an advantage in interleague, I don't think teams are going to design a roster uh, for those 18 games if it puts them at a disadvantage for the other 144. Mm-hmm. For the number. All right. Uh, next question comes from John in Detroit. He says, the dearth of baseball news, which characterizes this part of the offseason, got me thinking about the MLB schedule. I love how long the season is, but why 162 games? Needless to say, no other major sport plays nearly as many, and sometimes I wonder if baseball would be better off with fewer games spread out over the same six-month period. I know this is tantamount to heresy, and there's zero chance of it ever happening, but what do you guys think? What ramifications might there be to, say, having the number of games? Would the quality of play improve? The average attendance go up? The amount of money in the sport drop dramatically? Looking forward to your insight. So what's our insight? Uh, Well, I would hate it. (laughs) Right. As someone who writes about baseball and benefits greatly from there being more baseball to write about, uh, and someone who enjoys a lot of baseball being played, I would hate to see fewer games oh we'll see now i think it makes i think it would make it much easier to write about it the problem with uh writing about baseball now is that there's so many games that nothing matters like at all Mm -hmm. i don't know the first question i always get asked when people find out i write about baseball is what do you do during the off season yes explain that that the off season is way better because nothing that happens for Five and a half months means anything at all. It's all just small samples and streaks and, you know, like you can't possibly ever pick one game and write about it as though it means anything uh, until like there's two weeks left in the season. Whereas in the off season, every rumor has a great deal of impact. So, But if you have the number of games in the regular season, then we'd really never get to the point where anything meant anything. We'd be we'd be uh, tossing yeah, it small sample caveats till the last day of the season. <laughs> Yeah, for you're right. That's true. For analysis, that's true. For uh, the impact of a game on the pennant race, it would be less true. But yeah, you're right. Okay, so I take it back. You're absolutely correct. <laughs> okay. Uh, I guess the quality of play might improve, possibly. I mean, certainly you'd see tremendous your best improvement. starters would, would start a, a much higher percentage of the games. 
all, yeah, the pitching would be much better. I guess I guess it would probably be a, a net loss for offense. Well, how many pitchers would there be on each team? Six? Uh, Seven, maybe? Yeah, I guess. Like, basically, uh, you know, two, two, three starters, two of them good, mm-hmm. and maybe a third one who you're skipping every other time. Uh, but maybe three starters, uh, three relievers who are going to be fresh almost every day. Mm-hmm. Need them. And then a long man. So, so you have okay. seven pitchers. So just if you just cut the bottom half of all pitchers in Major League Baseball, they just don't throw any innings, mm-hmm. and you just look at the top half of pitchers, and and those are all your innings. Yeah, I mean it would be a massive, massive shift yeah. toward defense. I I assume that you wouldn't then give those roster spots over to hitters because if you did that, then at least you'd you'd be able to you'd get some platoon edge for the offense because yes, you could really that's true. You could carry a, a straight platoon for every position if you had that many positions, but I imagine you wouldn't do that. And hitters would be better rested, and you wouldn't have to give your best players days off ever, so that would counteract it a bit. But yeah, you would still see a lot less scoring, and uh, generally probably people would not like a lot less scoring, uh, so that might be bad economically and, and ratings-wise and popularity-wise, I would think. Um and of course, if you have fewer games, I would expect that you couldn't make as much money. Even if you sell out every game, uh, if you're playing half as many games, there's just no way you could make up the revenue. I mean, I guess unless you increase ticket prices by a ton, which I guess you could do. Yeah, yeah, you'd have to increase ticket prices a lot. Um, I don't know what the normal uh team has but like i the the couple teams that i'm aware of their season ticket base is more than half of their um their daily attendance and so those people are already buying 162 games so you're not going to get any more out of them Mm -hmm. uh but like eh, i don't know uh as far as walk-ups though if you if you consolidated all the walk-ups into half as many games then you'd have a lot more i think you'd have a lot more full houses but yes and I, I don't know. I don't think I could enjoy baseball, though, in the same way if it were every other day. I mean, it, I completely depend on it being a routine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I had to check every day to see if there was a game, um, I don't know that I ever would have gotten into it in the same way. I mean, it, so much of it is that it's what you do every day. And you do it – I mean, when I was growing up, I had – um, you know, I had a lot of chores to do. I had a lot of things I had to do outside around my parents' house. And the fact that there was always a game on the radio is what got me kind of into the routine of baseball. So mm-hmm. if that weren't the case, I mean, I don't know what I would – I mean, Mondays well, you, and Thursdays you are could already – stagger it. I mean, as it is now, there are so many games on at the same time that you can't possibly watch or listen to all of them. So you uh, could spread them out and have one every day but not have every team play every day. No, I could as a person who's paid to watch baseball games nonstop. But as a person who, if you're growing up and you're a fan of one team, you're not going to, you know, if you're a yes, that's if true. You're fan, you're not going to like be surfing MLB.TV looking for the Pirates game or whatever. You, you want a Nationals game on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we hate the idea. It's, I actually hate the person who likes it. <laughs> John in Detroit is our least favorite listener. Uh, I like question it i uh i think there's more t- there's more too i would like to think even more about this yeah uh, hang up i would like to think more about it and not have to talk about it <laughs> okay uh so our <laughs> last question 
there's more. Yes, there's one more question from Nick in Canberra, Australia, which is a very nice town that I have been in. Uh, Nick says, as a Giants fan, I look with wonderment and horror at the Dodgers spending since the new ownership took over. Does this mean the mechanisms for promoting parity in baseball's collective bargaining agreement are now obsolete? It seems MLB has achieved parity in spite of, rather than because of, the incentives in the current agreement. No other sport outside of European soccer has the same disparities in salary, and yet the playoffs are, par- are far from predictable. If the Dodgers become a dynasty spending $300 million in annual salary, will this lead to more harsh penalties to promote parity? Remember when we started this show and it was going to be 10 minutes every day? <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's how we were going to pull this off. 10 minutes. We could do 10 minutes. That's easy. Mission creep. Yeah. That's what you said after we went like 15 minutes after like a few episodes. <laughs> so, um, well, there's. I, I have two thoughts about this. One is that the the fear of an unbalanced league... I think has always great, been greater than the reality. It always, it's always seemed like we, it was going to get out of hand, um, but it is. It never. I don't think it ever really has. I mean, clearly the, the Yankees have advantages that the Pirates don't. And I think that if you're talking about the Pirates and the Royals, um, those are clearly situations where I think uh, there is a lost generation for baseball. I think it's a bit of a tragedy, and you can blame it a little. You can blame it somewhat on the finances. You also though can blame a lot of it on mismanagement. And there certainly have, um, almost every other team, uh, if not every other, I think every other team probably, has ha- has shown the ability to succeed within those limitations uh, at m- multiple points over the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. So I think that, that it's a little bit of a false fear. But I think that, um, I think of it almost like, um, well, okay, so like the, I think the most common view of, of God, of the sort of Christian God in our country, is that um, that God is both uh, in control, but also gives us free will. And so what that means is that uh, God blesses people, and that's why people pray and ask for their you know relatives to get healthy, but also allows evil to happen. And that's why bad things happen and why their relatives get sick, right? Mm-hmm. So it's mix it's it's a hard concept to really square but it's a mix of free will and also um kind of like uh omnip- omniscient uh support from from above okay mm-hmm. so i think that with baseball it's sort of the same where you want a situation where there is freedom for teams to spend more than other teams and to to you know, make more and to have more and to have unfair advantages and to be like the Dodgers or the Yankees uh, and to be like the Rays and the Royals. But also you don't want it to be completely out of hand. You want to have some guiding force that keeps some stability in the league and so that uh, the league can... And I, I think that it basically in that... I, I think that... Baseball is in a good place right now where it's not a heavy hand um, dictating everything, and yet there are sort of supports in place and also kind of free market things that make it so that small market teams also have advantages or at least things that equalize the chances a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I, why? I mean, 
uh, you can point to all sorts of individual examples, but that's why the Rays have been to be the most, you know, one of the three or four most successful teams in baseball over the last three years and more successful than, you know, far than the Red Sox. Um, and so I think it's a, it's a good system and the Dodgers are pushing that a little bit now. And so once again, fear comes up and I have that fear and everybody always has that fear, but so far the fears have not reached a reality. Yeah. And it's not clear how good the Dodgers are going to be really. Uh, I guess we've talked about that, but it's not as if they have built a team that on paper will blow away every other team. I would think that most people would not consider them the best team in baseball right now heading into next season. Um, if they did become a dynasty, as Nick says, and we're spending $300 million a year, then yes, I think that is very likely to lead to harsher penalties on that sort of thing. Um, but I guess as long as either they keep it below that astronomical number, which they're getting pretty close to, or as long as they don't just wipe the floor with every other team, uh, I think probably nothing more serious will be done, I would think. As long as as long as long no one feels like the system is too rigged, uh, no one will do anything else about it, I guess. Bingo. All right. So you made it. Uh, go get some sleep and and get ready to be angry and shout from the rooftops about the Hall of Fame results tomorrow. Thank you for your questions. Send us more at podcast at baseballprospectus.com, and we will be back on Thursday. <laughs>